Hi, this is David Spray, and welcome to another episode of the IC Disc Show. My guest today is Chris Dooley, the CEO of Dooley Tackaberry. Dooley Tackaberry is a fourth-generation firm that was founded 97 years ago in Beaumont, Texas. The company is one of the most reliable suppliers to energy and municipal fire markets. We had a great conversation around what it's like to be the fourth generation of a family-run business, and I received a couple takeaways from the interview. One is that Dula Tackerberry is run like a really, like a big extended family, and there's just a lot of appreciation and loyalty within the company, and it seems to go both ways, both the loyalty by the company and by the employees. And my second takeaway is that Dooley Tackerberry's model is one of being very customer-centric and very nimble and able to respond to whatever needs or requests that one of their customers may have. And given that their customers are typically Fortune 100 companies, these can be difficult companies to work for, but they've still managed to navigate an ability to be a trusted partner with those customers. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, David. Well, it's my pleasure. So why don't we, I'm going to do something a little different. We're not going to talk about you to start with. I want to get right into the company history because I think it's fascinating. And being an accountant, I'm kind of a a chronological learner. So why don't we start with the history of the company? And then when we get up to the part where you join, we'll talk about your story then. Does that work? Yeah, that sounds great. Well, Well, go ahead. ahead. No, I was just going to say, let's get started back at the beginning. So what year does this story begin? The story begins in the 1920s, David. My great-grandfather, whose name was Arthur Dooley, was living in Tampico, Mexico, and was selling fire protection equipment there to the oil companies during the oil boom. He, in 1925, approximately, he saw the oil boom there coming to an end, and he sold his business to his partners in Beaumont and used the proceeds and moved his family back to Beaumont, where he started what became our family's company. And he started a relationship with a company called National Foam Systems and was selling for what my dad has always said was selling for his own account, which meant that he had his own inventory and sold directly to customers. In the mid-1930s, my grandfather joined the company and they changed the name of the company to Arthur Dooley and Son. In the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the company became distributors to the leading fire equipment companies in the U.S., such as Ansel, Elkhart, and Akron Brass. In the 1950s, we forged a relationship with National Foam and sold firefighting foam to the major oil companies. And we stored large amounts of foam in our warehouse in Beaumont and used that foam to fight fires in refineries all across the Gulf Coast. And in some occasions, David, those fires will get so large that jumbo jets had to be rented and chartered from the factory. Yeah, and flown to the refineries along the Gulf Coast. And it was quite an undertaking. And then for whatever reason, I don't know whether our fire protection worked so well or various events didn't happen, but the fires sort of stopped. Hmm. 
And as has happened a lot of times during our history, David, we've gotten unique opportunities like in the early 70s, Exxon, which is now ExxonMobil, gave us a contract in Baytown, Texas to do fire extinguisher maintenance. Okay. And we took that and grew it all across the Gulf Coast and were fortunate enough because of we it just wasn't a real profitable business to exit that in 2001, and we sold that to the division of Tyco. Okay, let me just interrupt there. So Tyco back then was on an acquisition boom, weren't they? It seemed like it didn't matter what your company did. If you were profitable, they wanted to buy you. Is that about how I recall it? It was actually after that, David, I used the name Tyco because it's something everybody familiar with. But it was at that point, in 2001, it was Tyco. Before that, it would have been... Our just our manufacturer, which was Ansel, it just oh, okay. happened that Tyco owned the business, which is still is our manufacturer, which is Ansel. Oh, okay, all right. Thanks for that clarification. Sure. In the 1970s, we stumbled upon an opportunity, which became a major business of ours, where we saw large purchases of fire extinguishers, firefighting foam, and fire hose that was being purchased when a new chemical plant or refinery was being built. Engineering procurement and construction companies such as KBR and Fleur Daniel are hired by ExxonMobil to build a new refinery or chemical plant, and we provide the large fire protection equipment purchases, plus we custom fabricate fire suppression systems and sell them to these companies. And in 1984, David, we purchased a part of what was Kit of Fire Systems, which allowed us to fabricate specialty detection systems. And this became what we call business that's projects and represents half of the of our volume today. Okay. In nineteen eighty seven, during one of the continuing booms and busts in the oil and gas business, my dad was lucky enough to meet a gentleman named Bob Tackerberry, who ran the Tackerberry Company. Both companies really having a tough time because at that point, David, the price of oil was $10 a barrel. If you can. I remember that. that. Yeah. That's when I, that's when I came out of college, went to work for Arthur Anderson in the energy practice. So I do remember that. Yeah. And at that point, Bob Tackberry jokingly said that we were jumping up to reach bottom. So. Okay. (laughs) And it was really funny, David. One of the biggest challenges was what will we call a company? Because my family's company was Arthur Dooley and Son, Mm -hmm. and their their family company was the Tackberry Company. Sure. So we went out and hired a marketing agency and paid them $5,000, which was a fortune then. Especially with oil at $10 a barrel. You exactly. probably didn't have five thousand dollars to spend on that. No, I think we had to shake it out of a sofa somewhere. Yeah, we paid them five thousand dollars, and they came up with the revolutionary name of Dooley Tackberry, which <laughs> I guess blew everybody's mind. But I, I grew up in Beaumont and went to college at SMU. Went to work at one of the big accounting firms, EY, and became a CPA. Joined the company in 1991, and Bob Tackerberry's son, Glenn Tackerberry, was working here. And we, I was lucky enough to work with him for about 25 years. And it was really a unique deal, David, because his dad and my dad were great partners for, you know, over 30 years. And Glenn Tackerberry and I 
just got along wonderfully. He retired about five years ago because he wanted to move to Colorado, and I became CEO of the company in, in 2003 and have been you know, really fortunate to have run the business during that time. One of the interesting businesses that we got into, David, was manufacturing hose reels. And hose okay. reels are used in both offshore platforms and in refinery and chemical plants for both washdown and fire protection. Okay. And during that 30 years, we've sold about you know multiple thousands of those hose reels. Oh, wow. And what does yeah. one of those reels cost? I'm guessing it's more than the $10 I pay at Lowe's for a hose reel. Yes, sir. These are made of uh, stainless steel and contain our hard rubber hose and can sell for... Oh, wow. Yeah. But th that includes the hose, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so so that makes it seem more reasonable, right? If <laughs> I, if Lowe's <laughs> sold me the reel and the hose and I wasn't buying them separately, I probably wouldn't even notice the package price. So good. Okay. So you got into the hose reels business and right. you sold thousands of those. Yes, sir. Okay. What else has you, happened in the last couple decades? Well, I think one of the biggest things that we do, David, is we are really nimble with regard to solving customers' needs. Like you may remember the huge ITC fire a couple of years mm -hmm. ago on the yep. uh, ship channel. Well, it was a fire that burned pretty much out of control for four or five days, and we had to arrange for all the firefighting foam to be delivered directly from the manufacturer to the um, site right here in Houston, and our people worked around the clock for four days, calling the factory, calling other distributors, arranging for foam to be delivered directly to the site, and that's just one of the ways that we react and help our customers out of, you know, major binds. Mm. And one of the other things, we distribute all different kinds of products, uh, everything from bottled water to you know, Gatorade and things of that nature. And during the freeze last year, we were able to donate cases of water to one of the local hospitals when their um, mm. water system froze and failed. One of the things I wanted to really stress was we've been so very fortunate to have just an unbelievable amount of quality of employees through the years. I've had the great pleasure to have multiple people who've worked for my grandfather and then my dad and now me. Oh, wow. And that just, to me, that just doesn't happen. And no, that's very rare. Yeah. I was pulling together a, a corporate presentation for us, David, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I added up the tenure of all of our employees and I got up to 960 years, which is amazing for a company that only has 90 employees. So. Wow. Well, if I'm doing some quick math, that means you're going to pass a thousand years by uh, sometime this year, right? Yes, sir. It's it's an amazing story. I mean, I you know I tell a lot of people every day you have a choice of where you want to go to work, and we're very lucky to have them choose here. So it's been an amazing deal. So bit, other, uh, I'm ahead, just going to say if I could just interject. Yeah. So so I appreciate that there's a recognition that people have a choice where they work, but why else do you think people stay around? Is it because you have kegs of beer every Friday and a ping pong table to, to for them to hang out with? Is it because you just 
pay them you know, five times the prevailing wages. Well, what do you think your secret sauce is to people wanting to work with you? I think it's just always, you know, trying to do the best and right thing by everybody here. Like I still remember after Hurricane Ike, David sitting here at my desk and giving a hundred dollar bill to every single employee who was here. And oh just wow! Saying, you know, basically go home, take care of your family. When you know things get right, then you know come back. And like during Hurricane Harvey, we shut down the office for five days, and it was basically like. You know, go do what you need to do. Don't worry about, you know, driving through the floodwaters and, you know, a day's worth of payroll is a lot of money, but it just, you know, it's not even a second thought. I mean, we just, Mm -hmm. we do that and you do the, we're very fortunate that we don't, even though we have a board of directors, it's not like we have outside shareholders. We share, you know, the right thing by everybody and that, you know, that means a lot. And they, I think it means a lot to them and they're also able you know, then in turn to, you know, give back probably not necessarily more than they have to, but we have a lot of people who, for lack of a better word, kill themselves for the cause. And Mm -hmm. it just makes a huge difference. I mean, you can't replace experience. People, Mm -hmm. you know, have been around the block multiple times and, you know, been there and done that. Wow. That's, that's great. I love to hear that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a neat deal and it's something, you know, I take a lot of pride in. There's a lot of, you know, obviously, you know, culture goes a long way with regard to, you know, promoting the right things. And, you know, our people just do the right thing by, you know, the people that work for them. And mm-hmm. I've just, I've been so amazingly lucky to have so many people who make so many great decisions without a lot of coaching. And, mm-hmm. you know, again, that just really doesn't happen. So, no, I think that that's, I appreciate you sharing that. And so we had the challenge of Harvey five years ago, roughly. And then has it been just smooth sailing ever since then up till today? Oh, no question, David. Never a problem. <laughs> no issues. Well, you know, the great volatility of the price of oil is always something that challenges us because. Uh, probably 90% of our business fluctuates directly on the price of oil. And the last five years have just been really tough. I mean, I was looking back before we did this podcast, and the price of oil in 2014 was $120 a barrel. And in February 2016, it was $40 a barrel. Wow. And in 2014, we had 160 employees, and today we have 90. So. Wow. You know, I mean, it's just one of those deals you manage through the, you know, the time period and do what you have to do. But the writing it up is a lot uh, more fun than writing it down. So, sure. But, and, and I think in the spring of 2020, right in the peak of the COVID pandemic beginning, I believe oil was even substantially less than $40, right? Didn't it actually go negative at one point for a few days? Negative $30 a barrel. So, it 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 sort of I didn't realize that any commodity could ever sell for a negative price. Yeah, but, I didn't either. But apparently, it, if you had a if you had a huge oil tank that was empty, you uh, could have made out pretty well. 
yeah, I'm still a little frustrated with one of my friends who talked me out of buying oil at that point because I was about to buy my own super tanker <laughs> and fill it up because I figured if somebody was going to pay me $30 a barrel, I could store their oil. For sure, and it's not like it's uh, it goes bad, right? It's not Correct. like it spoils. Right, right. Wow, but he talked you out of it, huh? He did talk me out of it. I didn't have, you know, $25 million, so sort of a moot point. But okay. What, so... Probably the biggest challenge, though, David, in 2019 was we got in a really bad fix with mm. the bank we were working with at that point. And in about a four-month period, they told us that we needed to find another bank. And we were very lucky to find Wells Fargo. And they've been, you know, incredible, I guess what I call old-style bank, worked through us through, you know, the whole COVID period. And, you know, just have been, you know, been there for us and done the right thing and just, you know, wonderful business partner. But trying to find and, you know, we were, you know, again, very fortunate to have, you know, the right kind of people at the right place at the right time. But, man, that was really challenging. So that's been one of the, you know, harder things that we've had to face um, sure. Without it, in my whole career. So. Well, I'm really glad to hear that because, you know, Wells Fargo is obviously one of the you know, largest banks in the country. And sometimes big banks get a reputation of being not very flexible. But I know the folks I've met from Wells through the years seemed to not match up with that reputation. And so I, I'm glad to hear that from your personal experience as well. Yeah, yeah. And one of the interesting things when I was writing down my notes, we're probably one of the few companies that work with you guys that have had two discs in our company history. Oh, you've had two? I don't think I even knew that. So tell yeah. me about it. Well, in the early 70s, way before when I was a toddler, basically, I was probably six or seven, my dad set up a disc, which we ended up you know, closing down because I think that it... I, it wasn't that it was too expensive, David. I just don't think it had enough activity. Mm -hmm. And then during the late 90s, all the way up till the you know tax laws changed, we had a foreign sales corporation. Sure. Then we went through the whole extraterritorial income phase. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then have now, you know, with formed a disk and you're doing our transaction by transaction studies. I'd done a little bit of research because I'm no means tax expert, but I said, I think I even went out and bought a book about foreign sales and they suggest this foreign sales corporation. And I went in and said, okay, you know, what do we have to do as far as setting this thing up? And I can't, can't even imagine how much money we've saved mm -hmm. in that time period. So, Anyway, it's been a, a very interesting um, time period. I mean, we've been in businesses. We've been out of businesses. We sold fire trucks for five years. We were a distributor for a fire truck company called E1. And fire, fire truck business is very challenging, David. And we were in that business for about five years. We got out of it. You know, and just I think the nature of a smaller business is you have to be, you know, you you can plan all you want, but you still have to be reactive. And when you get opportunities, you just jump all over them. Like, for instance, one of our customers last year was doing an employee recognition program where they were buying Yeti coolers for 
their employees. Okay. Okay. And they said, we don't have a place to store these. Can we pay you and you store them for us? And we had some space in our warehouse. I'm like, sure, we can do that. And, you know, put the Yeti coolers in the back of our warehouse. But, you know, those are things you have to do and you have to be, you know, always serving your customer in the best way because you say no one time and they may never come back to you. Sure. And so if I hear you, you're saying that your nimbleness and ability to pivot multiple times over the last, boy, you guys will be celebrating the the centennial anniversary in three years, I think. Yes, sir. Exactly. Three. So So when you do that, you guys have obviously pivoted and, you know, a number of times, but it sounds like when you go further upstream, it sounds like the pivoting is really just a tactical implementation of the core philosophy of being customer centric. No question. I think the biggest deal is how do you use your products in various industries to where you don't get locked into a certain industry. Like for instance, we've always been oil and gas centric mm-hmm. and we're, you know, doing everything we possibly can to recruit sales guys that understand the telecom industry, that understand data centers, that understand, you know, transportation, whether it's airlines or, you know, rail or, you know, various other things where you can use safety equipment, the products we already sell, but it's in a very different industry. So Mm -hmm. that's one of the ways that we're trying to pivot right now because we just can't go through another, you know, time period like this because it's just too it's too risky not only the employees it's very risky uh, it's risky for the company it's also risky for the employees and mm-hmm. they're the ones who make it happen so um, anyway just trying to to grow in you know reasonable and sensible ways to where you can make the company more stable so and it it's a little tricky because you don't want to get too far away from what makes your company strong, but you can, you know, as I'm sure you've seen with, you know, other clients, it's a deal of trying to, you know, differentiate yourself or, you know, grow your business while, you know, still having that core foundation. Mm -hmm. So So, let's talk a bit more about your background. So you grew up in Vermont, right? Yep. Yes, sir. And then you made your way north for college to a Southern Methodist University, I believe. Is that right? Correct. Those were during the death penalty years, which was a very painful period of time to be a college student in the Southwest Conference because football is everything. And it was just an amazing time period, David. I mean, we had protests on campus because of the fact that we were involved in this pay-for-play type deal. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, we had what they called a payroll. And we were we were paying our football players to play every Saturday. So anyway, I, I made it north and uh, decided I would have an, do an accounting major. And then the big four accounting firms were extremely active on our campus. I got like seven job offers and was able to pick one from what was at that point Ernst and Winnie, right? Became Ernst and Young. And stayed there for about a year and a half, working harder than I ever thought I could possibly work. And then after about a year and a half, I decided I had pretty much enough and came back to work for the family business at that point. So My story is very similar to that because I've 
you know, have an accounting degree from UT, went to work for Arthur Anderson, same thing, had, there were the big eight then, I had offers from seven of them. I didn't get an offer from Pricewaterhouse, but had offers from the other seven. And, and I only made it about a year and a half, but to get certified as a CPA or licensed, you've got to have 4,000 hours of work. And I remember I hit my 4,000 hours in like 14 months, already had enough hours. Right. <laughs> and given there's only, you know, 2,000 work hours in a year, I can appreciate what you're saying about the hours you worked. It's like a year in public accounting is like a dog. It's like a dog year. It's like several years uh, outside of public accounting. Yeah. I remember when my first, during my first year, they used to let you bank overtime, which yep. you could then take as like basically comp time. And I think I mm -hmm. took like three months off in one summer where I basically just didn't work because I had all this overtime. Wow. And yeah, great way to spend time when you didn't have a whole lot of, you know, responsibilities and things of that nature. So, Sure. Do you remember the quarterback at SMU named Chris Hanslick? I don't remember him, no, sir. So he actually was a guest on my podcast. Really? And, and, there, and he's a partner. He's the uh, managing partner at the law firm of Boyer and Miller. Don't know if you've ever come across them, but they're actually a podcast client of ours too. And I think he told me he was the first quarterback in the first year after the death penalty. So okay. I think he's just, which would have been, was that after you'd left SMU that happened? Yes, sir. We lost yeah. the uh, football program in 1988, I believe, and they're still, they're still recovering from it. I mean, yeah. as hard as that is to believe, but... And, you know, coincidentally enough, they have never given any other college the death penalty. But it was just a, you know, really bizarre time period because once they gave the death penalty to SMU, it was just right. this mass exodus of all the football players. And, you know, it was a very interesting time period. Oh, anyway. I never thought about the students. You're right. If you're a student and you part of your college experience you're after was, you know, Saturday college football and you can't have that right right wow it, that's uh, yeah it was really bizarre while we because i had football there for the first i guess two years that i was there and then they didn't have it my senior year and we played in texas stadium which was just i mean we have i don't know fifteen thousand alums david and mm -hmm. we would play a and m and they would outnumber us five to one in sure. the stadium because they would come and they would fill it up and we couldn't even come close to filling it up. So it was just, it was really weird. I mean, it, it was a very unique experience and uh, in mostly bad ways, but it was very unique. So Sure. So SMU yeah. was apparently just ahead of its time because now it's okay to pay athletes, football players. So that was your problem. Y'all were just a little too far ahead of your time. And like a lot of things you get, we got caught. And yeah, exactly. I think nobody, I don't know anybody naive enough to think that SMU is the only program doing that. Well, where we got, I guess, dumb was we were writing checks out of the company, out of the company, out of the university's bank account, <laughs> paying this kid who wasn't even at school that coincidentally had a drug habit. And uh. And also at that point, David, there were a lot of cities where there were two newspapers in that city. And like in Dallas, there was the Morning News and the Times-Herald, and they would continue trying to scoop each other. 
Sure. As a result, they would go in and try to find, dig up dirt, and it was pretty easy at, at SMU. So, well, and obviously that's not that's not a real hard audit trail for somebody to uh, to pick up on, as opposed to the other schools that were more discreet. An alumnus who owned a car dealership would, you know, hire a kid for the summer to do, uh, you know, maintenance work or something. Right. And, right. And pay and and you know pay him, and the kid never showed up, and you know paid him a healthy amount of money. So, huh? Okay. So, were you the only kid at SMU not from Highland Park? I thought you had to grow up in Highland Park to be able to go to SMU. You did, and you also had to have a lot more zeros in the bank account. Than <laughs> I, did. I mean, I had to be one of the poorest kids in in my dorm, and I mean, you just went to some. I mean, like I went to went in my class was uh, Claire Schlumberger. Schlumberger Oil Company. Sure. And there were just, it was sort of like the who's who of Texas. And you would run mm-hmm. into people and they'd say, oh, yeah, well, my last name is Hunt or my last name is this. And you would sit there and think and go, wow, that's your dad's company. And it's right there on, you know, Central Expressway or it's yeah. you know, downtown Dallas or you know, what have you. So it was, that was a very unique experience. I know what it, that is like. I experienced that to a lesser degree at UT. I just say lesser because you still had some of those family dynasties there, but there were so many more students right. that it was that it was more, it wasn't as concentrated, I think, as yep. it probably was at SMU. Yep. Well, okay. So, well, that is a great kind of recap. Now, let me dig into a couple other questions that popped sure. in my head while you were talking. Yep. So, how do you describe the characteristics of the companies or the decision makers at those companies who Dooley Tackerberry is best or is kind of designed to best serve? Is it companies that are just looking for the low cost for everything and you guys try to be the low cost provider? Is it companies that want, you know, service and nimbleness? What, how would you say, what is, what are the characteristics of your ideal client or ideal customer? I think it's the companies that uh, appreciate our expertise in the market because we're not, we're never, we don't want to be and we never are the cheapest solution. We're okay. the company that brings the, you know, product knowledge and also the history of, you know, selling things that, you know, product that didn't work in a certain application or a customer we know had a problem with something else that they bought. And whether it was a competitive product or not, we know that it's not good for that application and that gas detector won't work in that situation. And as a result, even if they come to us and ask us for it, David, we're going to tell them, you know, that doesn't work in that application. It works in this application. Mm. And it's one of the greatest benefits of having people who've worked here for so long. They've seen things happen where, you know, that product did not work. So we need to recommend something different. Or we know this from the transition of the industry as it's, you know, pivoted and changed because there have been different, you know, firefighting solutions you know, during my whole career and even before that. And unless you're up to speed with what products work in certain environments, you can make really, you know, poor recommendations for your customers, which they don't forget. So mm-hmm. I think that the buyers, purchasing agents, engineers come to us because of the fact that we have the knowledge, we have the expertise, we have the experience in the industry because we've been in the industry 
so long and you know that's what makes us different okay well that that is helpful because i'm guessing because your customers are fortune 500 companies for the most part right yes sir it's the you know exxon mobil chevrons transactions yeah, yeah fortune let's or... go yeah exactly yeah, so you know, because those companies have a reputation of you know trying to commoditize everything and just sure. try to get the cheapest price. But apparently, you've been able to demonstrate to those purchasing managers and the engineers that there is a difference, and that you all are. And it sounds like you're trying to be more of a strategic partner than a vendor. Is that right? Correct. We also have the advantage, David, where that we are a distributor for. You know, I don't know how many hundreds of manufacturers, but we can do what we call package, where we can provide earplugs and hard hats and safety glasses and gas detectors from six to eight different manufacturers and put those all into one box. And it, it's not like Amazon, but it, it's in a similar you know vein to where one company can call us and they can ask for you know, very wide range of products and we can provide it all to them. And we will have that on a contract that they have in place that provides, you know, their mm -hmm. own individual pricing for those products. Okay. Yeah. So you also can be a, a one-stop shop for them, right? That is correct. So I'd like to talk about some customer success stories that come to mind. You don't need to name the customer by name, but you had the great story of the Yeti coolers that you all warehoused for the that customer. What's another story or two that comes to mind that that either you're proud of, you know, what your company was able to accomplish, or you think is representative of kind of a typical story where you all are, you know, really able to make a difference for your customers? Well, there was the ITC fire that we talked about earlier, probably another right. example. It was a massive fire that was going on in Brazil, I guess five years ago now, David, where it was burning out of control. And the president of Brazil went to this company and said, basically, you've got to figure out a way to put this fire out. And they, I forget exactly how they got lined up with us, but we ended up supplying five 747s full of firefighting foam and equipment and figured out the logistics of getting the foam from the manufacturers on truckloads sent to us at our warehouse. And then this company paid for the another company to put the product into the 747s and fly them from here to Brazil. And it was just a massive logistical challenge and also figuring wow. out how we were going to get paid, how we were going to deal with the logistics company because they were, you know, bumbling and confused at this point, which was surprising to me because they're an international company. But mm. they, anyway, we ended up providing all the product and they were able to put the fire out. And it was a, you know, it was a big deal because at that point it was, you know, it was a global incident because they were, you know, causing tons of pollution and it was just, you know, major issue. So that wow. that's one of the biggest ones that I'm proud of. Wow, that is, I can see why you are. That's quite a quite an accomplishment. So when I think of oil and gas, and I think of fires, the name Red Adair comes to mind. Yes, Have sir. you? Is your company ever crossed paths with Red Adair? 
or is he more focused, you know, kind of on the oil wells and you're more focused on the, you know, the refineries? Well, that company, I was trying to think of when they ceased to exist, but it's parts of them or parts of the founders or some of the founders went and formed new companies. I remember that. The company, it's a company called Williams in uh, not in Silsby, not in Vider, but it's in East Texas. They got sold to what's now part of Tyco. Uh, a number of years ago, and then I was trying to think of where the other pieces of the, that entity went. But they, you know, they went to different companies. Um, you know, whether they were sold off or you know started a new company up. But they were more into the firefighting, David, mm-hmm. versus the selling of equipment. Mm-hmm. And the plant would, you know, would catch fire, and they would go out there and physically fight the fire and extinguish it. They took a lot of pride by you know, extinguishing fires when they were out of control and, you know, did a great job, protected a lot of people and made a lot of money along the way, but they, you know, provided a great service. And we just never were in that, in Mm -hmm. that part of the business. We would supply the product, but we wouldn't get out there and actually put out the fire. So Sure. Now, would they have ever bought any of your product, like the foam or? They would have, but that was something where they had a direct relationship with, you know, with oh, the phone provider, national phone, exactly, because oh, they bought sure. so much all at one time. I've got you. Okay, that makes sense. Let's see. We talked about some of the challenges. What are some of the things you would say that you enjoy most about your role as the CEO? It's ability to be a, a mentor for people, and you know, allow them to grow and give them opportunities uh, that they wouldn't have someplace else, and also, just being able to watch their families grow and, you know, them become parents and, you know, becoming associated with their kids. I mean, one of the really cool things we were able to do, David, was <clears throat> during Ike, we had a, a daycare center in our training room, and we allowed employees to bring their kids up and put them in our training room. And we had some of the moms that were our employees went in there and basically ran a daycare center for multiple weeks because they didn't have daycare. And we've done that that a couple of times. We did that after Ike, and I believe we did that after Harvey. And, you know, those are just things that we can do that, you know, is neat to be able to do it because you don't have to, but you you do it just, you know, because it's something you're able to do. So that's neat. And then, you know, just watching people mature in their jobs and, you know, get – or they're hired and they get promoted multiple times and do, you know, a better and better job with each promotion. And, you know, those kind of, those things are very, you know, meaningful and beneficial to, to watch happen. So it really sounds like your culture, a way to describe it is it's like y'all are one big family, right? We are. I mean, everybody, you know, for the most part watches out for each other and we'll, help people out, whether it's, you know, doing fun drives for employees that are having a difficult time for various reasons, or, you know, like we'll have bullet drives in the parking lot. And, you know, like I said, the donation of the bottled water and, you know, just, you know, things that I don't think happen in big companies because, you know, they're having to report to, you know, corporate headquarters that, Mm -hmm. you know, can't really identify with what's going on locally. So. Mm -hmm. 
Is there a, yeah, no, I, I get that. Is there a, somebody with Dooley or Tackaberry in their last name who uh, uh, you expect to succeed or succeed you, or are you going to be working there for all eternity? I sure hope I'm not here for all eternity, <laughs> David. I, you know, it, it's hard to say. My middle son, who has expressed an interest in being involved in the business, is 21, and my youngest son is 17, so they've got a long way to go. I mean, I wasn't – I was 34 when I became CEO, or I'm sorry, 30. Seven, I guess, when I became CEO. So it, you know, it takes a while. You got to figure out how to, you know, handle the people. You have to have a lot of different experiences where, you know, you've tried, you failed, you've, you know, done the right thing. You know, made good employee decisions or, you know, made poor employee decisions. Whether it was the wrong person you hired or, you know, very, you just have to, you have to make mistakes because, unfortunately, at least. From what I've experienced, the you know the things that you do wrong are where you learn the most, and so the places where you do them, where you do mm-hmm. the right thing. So you learn a lot by your mistakes. I guess is the bottom line. So sure, I heard it say said once that experience prevents mistakes, but it's mistakes that give you the experience. So that is very true. Very true. So as we're rounding the home stretch, just a couple more questions. What do you know? You what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were 25? Well, that's a good question. I guess just more of a a broader understanding of where our business needed to be versus where it was at. Because we've, up until the last couple of years, David, we basically ignored everything that was not oil and gas related. And as a result of that, we became so dependent upon one industry which is great when that industry is strong, but when it's not strong, like we've seen over the last five years, it gets really challenging. And I wish I'd forced myself during the, you know, really good years to go and hire people that could chase new markets. And, but, you know, the prevailing wisdom was around here by myself and by others that why should we, you know, go to hospitals or why should we go to, transportation or, you know, what have you, because we had this massive customer base that, you know, allowed us to be very successful. So mm-hmm. that, that's the biggest thing that I wish I'd understood was how, you know, volatile and also dependent we were on just, you know, a very large industry, but an industry that could, you know, fluctuate all over the place. Yeah. And and I guess, and there's a balance there though, too, right? Because oil and gas is your niche. You have a competitive advantage compared to other companies. So I can see why you all would gravitate toward that. And then the problem with the diversification, you're going into industries where there might be incumbents who have, you heard the Dooley Tackaberry equivalent in the hospital space. Right. So it's a tricky balance there, I suppose. Well, what you're trying to do is to find another company where, I mean, like we compete a lot with Granger, and Granger mm-hmm. is wonderful. I don't know whether you've ever seen the Big Red Book, but it's, yeah, I, I I know about Granger. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's six inches tall, and you can buy you know whatever you want to. But the problem they have is providing uh, the competitive price. So you try to find industries where their current or incumbent distributor, you know, just isn't really, you know, 
keeping their eye on the ball and trying mm-hmm. to, you know, being able to use that to, you know, enable you to do, you know, business with that company. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. Last two questions. Yes, sir. The, the first one's a kind of a fun one. So we're here in Texas. So just give me your immediate answer that comes to mind. So barbecue or Tex-Mex? Tex-Mex. Okay. I'm with you there. I heard one of my guests answered it this way. He said, if the barbecue, if I know for sure the barbecue is like world-class, I'll take the barbecue. If I know for sure that my choice are two just average foods, you know, average Tex-Mex and average barbecue, that he would take the average Tex-Mex because Tex-Mex seems to have more tolerance for mediocrity than the barbecue does. <laughs> I think that's a great way to describe it. Never thought about it like that. But I think <laughs> yes. what's interesting, David, is I don't know whether you've ever been to Tennessee, but their big deal is wet barbecue or dry barbecue. I know. I've been to Memphis. I had the ribs both ways. Yeah. And I, th- I think I liked them better dry. Right. They are very particular about the kind of barbecue that each person likes. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know. Well, so the last question I have is, is there anything that we that we should have talked about, but we didn't? Anything come to mind? Well, I think the, the neatest thing for me, David, is the relationships that I've forged, like with some of the people that you've interviewed on this podcast, John Ryan, who had the untimely passing a couple of weeks ago and, you know, yeah. just salt-of-the-earth type people. He and Paul Liberato, Dave Magnus, who you a week or so ago, and just those special relationships that you're able to form during your business career with people you would have never interacted with were you not in a business. And it's, you know, I think also just the ability to, you know, watch a business grow and, you know, unfortunately at times shrink and, you know, having to be reactive is you know, crazy and stressful as it might be, but you learn a lot about yourself and you learn a lot about, you know, things that work and things that don't work. So Mm -hmm. I've heard it said that, that it, in the end, at the end of your life, all that really matters are the relationships. And I used to think that meant like personal relationships, you know, like your family and friends, but I've come to since learn that includes the business relationships too, because sometimes those relationships can be as close as you know friends and family, right? Right, exactly. So, yeah, Paul used to say that that he and Johnny Johnny Ryan had a how did he describe it a relationship like two brothers that there was mm-hmm. a certain tumultuousness to it, and in fact, I think Paul told the story when that once he and Johnny had to be physically separated because they were in a in a wrestling fist fight somewhere. But he said that if he was ever thrown into a third world prison, that his first call would be to Johnny because Johnny would figure out a way to get him out. I could definitely see that. I could definitely see that. No question. So, well, hey, well, this has really been fun. So just a couple of things on my end. One, so thank you for being on the podcast. It's it's a great story, and I'm glad to be able to give you a platform to tell it. Well, thank you, David. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. 
Yeah, but yes, indeed. And then the second thing is I just want to take a moment to thank you for the opportunity to be able to partner up with you all on your IC disc. You and your team have just been really delightful to work with, both your internal and your external team. And I just want to just thank you for giving us the opportunity to to work with you all. We don't take that lightly. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Y'all have been, or you in particular, have been easy to work with. And, you know, again, it's the, you know, it's the kind of people that, you know, we're fortunate to have because I don't have to, you know, have a lot of constant interaction with them. I know it will be handled in the proper way and will be fair and will be, you know, professional and polite and all those good things. Well, I completely agree. Well, Chris, I hope you have a great afternoon and thanks again for being on the show. Okay. There we Thank have you. it. Another great episode. Thanks for listening in. If you want to continue the conversation, go to icdiscshow.com. That's ic-discshow.com. And we have additional information on the podcast, archived episodes, as well as a button to be a guest. So if you'd like to be a guest, go select that and fill out the information. And we'd love to have you on the show. So that's it. We'll be back next time with another episode of the IC Disc Show.